Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. Today we're going to do another special guest episode. As many of you may know, last November, 2018, I spoke on a panel and gave a public talk at the Sound Education Conference at Harvard Divinity School. Well, while I was in Boston, for the first time actually, I used the opportunity to see the new Daily Life in Ancient Greece exhibit at the Museum of Fine Arts, or MFA Boston for short. Not only that, but Dr. Phoebe Segal, who is the Mary Bryce Comstock Curator for Greek and Roman Art at the museum, agreed to give me a one-on-one tour of the exhibit and to allow me to record our conversation while doing it. Unfortunately, my airplane landed about an hour later than was expected, and so we only had about an hour to squeeze the entire tour in, which as you can imagine, you just can't do and still see everything adequately. So I made the decision to cut out a few of the sections and focus more on the others. Unfortunately, this meant that the sections on war and athletics were excluded. Those were chosen to be skipped by me for the sake of time because I felt that those were the topics that I was most familiar with already. Included, though, were the sections on death and remembrance, women and marriage, family and children, beautification and dress, medicine, artisans, agriculture, and commerce. These all were topics that I had recently done episodes on, and so it was the perfect complement on the heels of the cultural tour of the 5th century BC that the podcast had embarked on over the last year and a half. Generally speaking, I had requested beforehand to be shown objects that detail women's life in the home, such as images on vases, woolworking tools, cosmetics, perfume jars, and mirrors, objects that detail what it was like to be a young boy or girl, such as images on vases, bottles, rattles, toys, and recreational sports, objects that deal with what Greek homes were like, so again, images on vases, furniture, cooking and eating utensils, and clothes. Objects are images that deal with marriage rituals and how the Greeks coped with death. And finally, images are objects associated with life on the farm or life at work in industry and commerce. And Phoebe did an amazing job at guiding me right to those objects and providing tons of useful information. It also should be noted that this guided tour took place during normal business hours, so there were some background noises at certain times. And this also was my first attempt at recording in situ and not from behind a laptop. So needless to say, while simultaneously walking, looking at the exhibit, and listening to the interviewee all at once, there were several times where the volumes dip in and out because I didn't have a steady hand, and I do apologize. With those caveats out of the way, I think the tour turned out really well, and I think I was able to elevate the audio enough so that it hopefully isn't too jarring at times. Finally, in the show notes, there will be pictures posted for the various pieces of art that we discussed. And as Phoebe noted, the entire collection of the MFA Boston is digitalized, so you can search the whole exhibit on their website, which also will be linked in the show notes. But even still, I would definitely recommend for anyone to visit the museum and the exhibit in person if you get the opportunity. And so, without further ado, I present to you my tour of the daily life in ancient Greece exhibit at MFA Boston. So how did the exhibit begin? So the gallery, which is a collections gallery, so that means that all of the objects in the gallery are part of the MFA's permanent collection, was conceived of originally in 2006 when my supervisor, Christine Condolian, the Georgian Margot Barakas Chair of Ancient Greek and Roman Art at the museum, was asked to come up for a vision to install Greek and Roman and Etruscan art on the second floor of the Barakas Ancient Wing. 
And it was through her experience as a professor at Williams College and her experience teaching a seminar at the museum in her early years here in the early 2000s that she devised the theme of daily life as a very relatable point of entry into the ancient world for our visitors. The various categories of daily life, how were they decided upon when the idea came about? Because obviously there's so much you can focus on. How are these categories delineated? Yeah, that's a great question because obviously for us, what we categorize as daily life may be our own categories that we're imposing on the Greeks, right? So we have not included religion or ritual really in our presentation, but of course for the Greeks, religion and ritual was part of their everyday life. That topic will be covered in a separate gallery devoted to the gods who lived in Mount Olympus in the future. So this was meant to be everyday life, right? So the primary daily activities that we have, and this is important, represented in the collection, of course. So it's really the collection that determined, in a sense, how those categories were resolved. But basically, we did follow a somewhat gendered kind of binary because that really did exist, particularly for the Athenians, but for all Greeks, at least in the archaic and classical periods. And those are the periods that this gallery really focuses on. So we have a couple of objects that are a bit later that are very similar. They're types of objects that really didn't change over time, like this transport amphora that speaks to the incredible amount of trade was going on at far distances, even back in as early as the Bronze Age. But it really is about everyday life. So the way the exhibit is set up as you walk in, what was the determining factor in the aesthetics and the overall layout of the exhibit? Right. Excellent question. Three years ago, just after we had secured all the funds to do this renovation, and we had our themes determined. So by that point, we had settled on the main themes being the family, women, athletes, and warriors as the two predominant activities of men, war, and athletics livelihood, not only the professions, over 100 professions attested, but also agriculture, commerce, and trade. And also, and this is very important, another major daily activity was mourning the dead. So remembrance is a major theme in the gallery, and that's, of course, still a resonant theme. And this was somewhat predetermined by our other new installation that's on the other side of the Roman court. We were going to have this large case here when people came into the gallery. And at first, we had it designated for one of the themes. And he challenged us to think more broadly about creating an introductory case that would grab people and also offer people a taste of what the gallery held in store without necessarily having to go in and see the whole thing. Because we know that in museums, people stop for a short time. Sometimes they're just on their way. So the question is, how do you offer everybody something? So pretty quickly, we work together. We work in a really productive, collaborative team, not just curators working together. So I was a co-curator on this project with Christine, but also with our head of interpretation, whose role is really in the education department, but he's a kind of mediator between us and our visitors in terms of messaging. Our designer, our brilliant designer, our conservators who do not only examine every work of art that goes into the gallery, but also do very interesting research that helps us learn more about the objects themselves. And so pretty quickly, we came up with a plan to offer our visitors an introduction to the various themes. And that's what you see here in these object groupings. But we also took the opportunity to 
tell a couple of the stories that we're not telling. So to acknowledge that in our presentation of daily life, we are excluding some stories from even our own very strong narrative. And also to really engage our visitors in the ways in which these objects can be problematic and challenge what we read, particularly in the literary record. For instance, this stamnos, which is a vessel for holding grain or wine, and it was made in Athens at the end of the 6th century, and it features three nude female athletes. Now, we know that women never competed in athletics in Athens. There was some tradition of training in Sparta, right, but not in Athens, that they were not even necessarily permitted to attend athletic competitions like the games, and they were never seen in public nude. So our labeling here really engages with what are these three nude women, nude athletes. And we know they're athletes because they're holding the strigil. That's the bronze scraper that athletes use to scrape the dust and dirt-filled oil off of themselves after competition. And so the strigil is really the symbol of the athlete. And it's an elite symbol because only those who had the means not to have to work in a profession like some of the professions that we have depicted on our objects had the leisure time to engage in athletics. So they're depicted here in a realm that they can't possibly be daily life or reality. So then we ask ourselves why, and then we have to look at the context in which this object is used. And that context is the symposium. Now, the symposium, the elite all-male drinking party, is covered in a gallery across the hall devoted to Dionysus and the symposium, but we're reminded that these women are being looked at by men, right? So they're erotically charged, and it must have been some kind of not inside joke, but there's something that we're missing. So here in this case, we're able to dig a little bit deeper with the objects. And in the subsequent cases, we focus more on like facts, if you will. That's interesting. So in making the delineations between what you are going to set up with the family, the women, war, athletics, livelihood, all that sort of stuff. And you mentioned that kind of was depicted by what was already in the museum in the mm-hmm. first place. Are all these pieces already from this museum or did you get some on loan from others to help fill out, so to speak, some of these categories? Yeah. So actually, every work in this gallery is from the MFA's collection. We have 17,000 works of art in our Greek and Roman collection. 8,000 of those are coins. Coins are the focus of the adjacent gallery, which opened in 2012. They were always imagined to be adjacent and flow one into the other, because after all, without money, you can't have daily life, right? So in the coin gallery, there are some recent acquisitions. In daily life, the most recent acquisition, I believe, is the set of medical instruments that are actually Roman, but they're of a shape that are consistent throughout time. And those were purchased um, about a decade ago. We didn't actually ask for any loans for this gallery. The only area that I wanted to improve through loans was a section on civics, where we might have included ostraca, those pottery shirts that have names written on them of prominent citizens that were gaining too much power. But we had so much already to work with that we'll save that for another time. And you would have had to get those from the, the Agara Museum. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So, um, but I do want to just add that there are 250 objects in this mm-hmm. installation. And so it's a very rich, very dense installation. 
Oh, I did want to mention, though, the objects that are on view, many of them were in the museum as of like 100 years ago. So while there is this new acquisition of the medical instruments, most of them actually predate even the Second World War in terms of when they entered the collection. And some entered even in the late 19th century. So the museum was founded in 1870. But the MFA participated in excavations that were conducted by the Archaeological Institute of America in the 1880s at the site of Assos in what's now Western Turkey. And so we have a number of daily life objects from Assos, like the wonderful granary, which I'll show you, and also loom weights and the kinds of objects that really speak to everyday life. And those were all excavated. So we know where they came from. So since you've had some pieces that have been here quite a while, were there any that needed to go through any sort of repair or how was that process like getting the objects ready? Right. So every object goes to conservation and is assessed and that takes time in and of itself. And so every object is treated. Every object gets a new mount. You'll barely see them because our mount makers are so skillful that they're completely hidden. And also the objects that don't have high-res color photography also cycle through the photo studio. This is really important because for anybody who can't visit the museum, our website is really important. And every time we do a renovation project, we take the opportunity to have objects updated so that we can really make sure that our public worldwide can see them to their best advantage. In terms of conservation projects, I'll show you a few that were very interesting in that our conservation colleagues helped us to do research on the objects that uncovered new aspects of them. So for instance, in this funerary marker, which is in the shape of an oil jar, this very type of vessel that you see in the nearby case, we noticed that there was ghosting of what we call polychromy, so that original paint. So it's both in the meander pattern that's below the figures. And also, and it's hard to see this because of the height, there's a pattern here. It's a, sort of like an egg and dart pattern. And then above, which I can't see at all, but you might. So what we did was we studied the piece under UV light, and that reveals much more of the pigment. And then our conservator, Mayon Su, did this work. She studied also the surface of the vessel or the marker. And through an analysis of the pigments, we were able to come up with this sort of faux restoration or, or um, fill in the colors so that we can share with our public that not only was this funerary marker, this marble painted, but actually all the marbles from Greek and Roman antiquity were painted. Now, this is a topic that's been covered a lot in the press recently. In fact, just this week, there's an article in the New Yorker magazine that features the work of one of our colleagues, Dr. Mark Abbey, who's at the University of Georgia. He's coming to speak here actually on Valentine's Day. We're going to have a whole session on polychromy. And so we're really excited about that. That was planned before the New Yorker article, but we're really proud of him and all the work that he's done and others um, to help us to see sculpture through Greek and Roman eyes. I mean, it's nearly impossible because even as sophisticated as the renderings are becoming, and we can do more now through technology, like filters on phones and so forth, we're still culturally attached to them being white. Right. We're just so accustomed for hundreds of years to seeing them white and inheriting that tradition that we have to educate ourselves more, but we're still learning. 
So that was a big project. And then another big project actually was the restoration of these two funerary plaques. So this whole case is devoted to mourning the dead. So to the various rituals and the way in which families and communities came together to mourn their dead, the various rituals like laying out of the body, the singing of lamentations, the funerary banqueting, which we don't cover too much in this case, but was a big part of the funeral, and then the deposition of grave offerings in the tombs. And also these oil jars, which populate the case, painted in this technique known as white ground technique, which feature in many cases images of family members, mostly women, bringing adornments to the grave. So we see this in the tying of ribbons on, so here's a a good example of a woman bringing a whole tray, really a basket, you see the beautiful weaving of it, shallow basket of ribbons, and also carrying a vessel of this shape. This shape was used to contain perfumed oil that would have been poured on the grave as an offering to the deceased. And you also see, here's an example of the laying out of the body. That's the funerary beer. Anyway, I was going back to the plaques. (laughs) Sorry, I got a little off track. So the plaques show three women with their hands on their heads in a gesture of mourning. And then this, as I mentioned before, the laying out of the body. And if you look closely... Now, these are very, very rare to have these funerary plaques, which probably were tomb decorations, right, for inside the tomb. So they perpetuate those rituals that took place at a particular moment in time. The imagery perpetuates them eternally. So what you see, if you look at the skirts on the left, you'll see that our conservator has used almost like a pointillist technique where she has filled in in a reversible technique. So if a future generation of curators and conservators decides that they want it to look exactly like it was discovered, you know, in the early 20th century, they can undo them safely without damaging the rest of the object. But for us, we wanted our audiences to really be able to appreciate the imagery. And at the same time, we wanted to communicate in some way that this part of the plaque is restored, right? So that's the reason for using this sort of stippling technique. So this took a really long time because it's very careful work. It's art in and of itself. I mean, there's no question that our conservators are artists as well as scientists. So the birds and the siren underneath the funeral beard, I've never seen that before. Is that a common? Actually, so sirens have a very close association with funerary imagery, and that's really through song. They sing these lamentations. And so actually you see them not only here, very observant to notice it beneath the funerary beard, but also if we come over to this funerary grave marker over here, you see that the siren is on top. So there's a relief of... A young woman, I puzzled over whether this was a girl or a young woman for like months and never came to a conclusion. But um, it's very hard to determine age, actually, if there's nobody else around in regard. But above, as a kind of finial on the grave marker, is the figure of a siren. And you notice that she has one of her hands tearing her hair, her left hand, and her right hand is beating her breast. So she's singing a lamentation to the deceased. And again, all of the imagery is meant to perpetuate for eternity those rituals that took place in the funeral. Interesting. Yeah, I had never seen that before. And when you come back, next time, we've just lent a piece to the Getty for a show about the underworld. It's just opening. I think it opened actually last night on Halloween, (laughs) appropriately. And we lent another siren that's a little bit later in date from the 4th century. It's a beautiful white marble siren, also from part of a grave monument. And she's a weeping siren. Quite very, very beautiful. So they do have this close association because of the, the singing. 
So why don't we talk about one of the signature major pieces of the gallery? That is this vessel here called a Lutrophoros. It was a vessel for carrying water that was collected from a sacred spring and brought to the home of the bride and the groom prior to the wedding for use in a prenuptial purifying bath. So we know that in lots of cultures then and now, water is used to purify those undergoing rites of passage, right? You'll notice right away that this shape is unusual because of its elongated neck. So it has these really, really tall handles. And it's not a particularly common shape either. This vessel is very special because it tells the story of the Greek wedding from beginning to end. So I want to back up for just a moment and just say that all Greek marriages were arranged by the male relatives in the two families. And so young women who were actually they were girls, they were about 13, were usually married to men who were about 30 or older. And so you had a young girl who had probably never met her groom before, and all the decisions are being made by men. And yet this moment, the wedding, becoming a woman, was the most defining and important moment in her life, right? So she's like no control over it, and yet it's completely the most important thing in her life. So it's just kind of a lens for thinking about the imagery and all the attention that's given over to preparing the bride to undergo this transition. So if we start sort of on the beginning side of the vase, we see that the story really begins with the betrothal. And that is signified by the bride's father, who is bearded. So that's where we get the sign that he's older, shaking hands, a gesture of mutual agreement then in antiquity as now, with a young man. So he's clean shaven, right? The groom. And the groom is very well dressed. He's wearing this rather elegant kaitoniskos, this short chiton, and a nice cloak over that and beautiful sandals. So the grooms as well as the brides were really in their best finery for the weddings. And then if we follow it around, we see a number of bridal attendants and they're carrying various objects that are used to prepare the bride. So one is a cosmetics jar. That's this first object with the very tall lid. And we see that very type of cosmetics jar actually in one of our cases. And we know that they were deposited in tombs as offerings. Also a fan, which is a symbol of luxury and ease, something that's adopted from the East. Also another attendant carrying a chest, probably filled with other articles of clothing, either like ribbons for the hair and also perhaps the jewelry. And we see a bird. And that bird we identify as a goose. And if you stick around in the Fenway a little too long, you'll see a lot of them in this area. <laughs> the goose is one of the water birds, like swans as well, that are associated with Aphrodite. Aphrodite being the goddess of love and beauty. So the goose is really there as the representative of Aphrodite. Then we follow along a little bit further, and we see a figure we read as probably the mother of the bride. We also know that elite Greek families hired wedding planners, um, just as we have today, or some people do. And we see that this next figure, the mother of the bride, is fixing or arranging the bride's veil, right? So brides were always veiled. And so she has her left hand just under the veil and her right hand just on the bride's shoulder, probably offering her a little bit of, you know, sort of comfort or assurance, really. And then we see two Orotes. Eros is the son of Aphrodite, right? He's one of Aphrodite's many children, but the most important. And in the plural and in visual arts, we see Orotes. So he proliferates at a certain point. 
And the rotis are there. Now you notice the bride is being taken by the groom. He's leading her by the hand. Rotis are there and they're actually also there as bridal attendants. And you see the one in front of the bride is sort of maybe helping to keep her diadem, her crown in place. But they're also there because as I mentioned before, these marriages were arranged, right? So they were basically business arrangements and the bride and groom may, as I mentioned, may never have met. And so there was no guarantee at all that they would necessarily be attracted to each other, right? So the rotis are there to incite desire between the bride and groom. And then you see the groom. So we see him twice on the vase, and this is the second time. And he's taking the bride by her hand now and leading her, right? So it's a very different gesture from the one we saw before where he and the father are shaking hands, right? It's not forceful, but it's more dominant. And so he's leading her to his house and standing in front of his family's home is his mother, so the mother of the groom. And she's holding two objects that look like sticks, but they're really torches. And that reminds us that the wedding procession, and I should have mentioned before that these weddings took place over the course of three days, and they consisted of sacrifices and feasting and music and dance and gift giving. But the centerpiece was, of course, the procession. And so she's greeting the couple at the home of the groom, where they will now live. And she's standing just up against the doorway to the home. And you can see that the doorway is open and peeking out. It's hard to see because of the condition of the vase. We see that there's a lot of ghosting, like a lot of original painted lines, or I should say they're gloss lines that are missing now because of the passage of time. But we see them there in these sort of ghosted remnants. And so you can see peeking out is the marriage bed. So just at the very bottom is this beautifully turned leg of the marriage bed. And so the conclusion of the wedding, of course, is the consummation of the marriage and the production of legitimate children, right? And preferably male children. So the whole point of Greek marriage was to produce legitimate future citizens and warriors for the state. Now, this is really fun. On the doorstep of the house, again, is Eros. Here he appears just as a singleton. And he's there, again, to remind us of the consummation. But also, there was a tradition in Greece in which a boy child who was considered fortunate or of a fortunate union from a happy family, importantly, both parents were still living was chosen to sleep in the bed of the bride the night before the wedding as a kind of lucky charm. And so this figure, just beyond the door frame, who's kind of mysterious because she doesn't really fit with any of the other characters, she has her hands up in a gesture of surprise. So this is where we have to really do our work to interpret the scene. We think that she's surprised by the fact that it's Eros who's here, you know, instead of just the boy child of another family. So that's sort of her, aha, you know, surprise me moment. What's interesting is that we see here a figure actually carrying a vessel of this shape. So the sort of procession continues. Now, importantly, and I didn't mention this before, this vessel, which I said I sort of fibbed at the beginning and said that it was used to carry bath water, probably wasn't because it has a wheel-made hole, what seems like an original hole in the bottom of the vessel. Now, that's something that we discovered when we were preparing this Lutriforos for exhibition in our Aphrodite and the Gods of Love show some years ago. That hole, the original hole, indicates that it wasn't actually used in a wedding, but rather in a funerary context, and that it was used in the funeral as a vessel through which oil was poured in honor of the dead. 
that reminds me to mention that there's really a proliferation of this kind of wedding imagery in the second half of the fifth century in Athens. And we see that in other places, like in this case here, we see two small oil jars, both of which feature brides and arrows, again, acting as a kind of bridal attendant. In one case, on the left, he's tying the bride's sandal. On the right, he's offering the bride and groom fruits, which were consumed as part of the wedding ritual for symbolism for fertility. And some people have suggested that this proliferation of wedding imagery really speaks to the need in the context of the tomb to represent perhaps the wedding that didn't occur in life. Now, none of these was excavated in a archaeological context, and even until recently, bones weren't recorded. So we would have to wait for future evidence of associating the kinds of imagery with bones that were of a young woman. But the idea is that perhaps the imagery served in death for this accomplishment that a young girl perhaps who died before the age of maturity didn't attain in life. So that's one of the theories. One of the other objects I'd like to show you in connection with marriage is this bronze mirror. Now, it's in two parts. So part on the right, this is part of a mirror known as a box mirror, where it has a top usually decorated in relief, and you would open it, you have a hinge, and you'd open the, the mirror, and the reflective surface would be perhaps on the inside. So here we have on the right, in relief, the outside, and you see the little handle at the bottom, the loop handle. You see Aphrodite, the goddess, seated on a rocky outcrop, and even there's a little goose, it looks like, at her feet. And Eros is flying over to her, so her son, and he looks like he's in the middle of telling her something, right? He's, he's communicating, he's his hand on her breast. And then on the interior of the mirror is an image of another child of Aphrodite, the god Hymenaeus, who was actually the god that was in charge of the wedding ritual itself. And here, we got at the right angle, because it's a very difficult image to see. So the figure, you can see him, he's outlined in silver, and then there are gold details. And what is he holding? He's holding a torch, right? And he's also holding a lutrophorus, right? So we think that because of this imagery, and because bronze mirrors were luxury items, that this may have actually been a wedding gift for a woman. I mean, it's speculation because we don't have hard evidence. We don't have an inscription. But thinking about the objects in their original context does really connect us to, you know, the real life woman who lived 2,400 years ago who may have received this on her wedding day. So that's always fun to make those connections. In this case, we present a number of objects that were used by women and for women predominantly in their beautification. So it was very important, and we see this in the wedding imagery, and also through the preponderance of these kinds of dedications, most of which we find in tombs, but sometimes also in sanctuaries dedicated to gods, the attention given over to the beautification of brides is significant. And we read about it also in the literary sources that it was incumbent on women to really gussy themselves up. And as I said before, you know, since these marriages were matches made by male relatives, a woman was responsible for seducing her husband. So we see that in perfume containers. There was a big trade in perfume in antiquity and also in cosmetics. So we don't actually have any of those kinds of eye pencils that were used, but they're known. Also mirrors, right? So we looked at a mirror just before, and we have a lot of different kinds of mirrors represented. This particular type of mirror, known as a karyatid mirror, because the mirror support takes the shape of a 
young female, sometimes interpreted as Aphrodite herself, sometimes as a worshiper of Aphrodite, sometimes as Helen, the most beautiful woman in Greece and one of the heroines of the catalyst for the Trojan War. We see this type of mirror closely associated with Aphrodite. Also, we have an image of a woman in the company of all of these accoutrements. She's looking in a mirror that's actually in profile. That's a difficult image to read, actually. The first time I looked at it, I thought she was holding a dagger. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, she's trying to do herself in. But she's actually holding a mirror in profile. And that's a very sophisticated thing to represent pictorially. And she's wearing a beautiful bracelet. Looks like she's arranging her hair. Now, if we turn over to this case, which I had a lot of fun working on, this case focuses on the object, the whole point of marriage, and that is the creation of legitimate children. So in this case, we had a lot of objects in the collection that speak to the nurturing of children. So who nurtured them? Predominantly women. So caregivers, like either the mother, and we see examples of nursing mothers, also caregivers who worked in the home, either as servants or sometimes as slaves. We see that in this comic figure of the old nurse carrying a baby. Sometimes the old nurse is carrying a bottle, but that's in our other theater gallery. What we don't see usually, and we have a couple of examples over in the introductory case of fathers with sons, and usually we see fathers and sons in the context of departures for war. We don't see fathers and sons in a kind of nurturing, playful way. Except in the case of this small oil jar in which a daddy satyr gets ready to catch his baby boy satyr who's about to leap off a chair. This is a move my children have done like a gazillion times. But what's interesting here is that the father-son relationship in playful terms can only be articulated in the realm of the other, of the bestial, of you know somewhere else distant in time. So that's very interesting because it's a real contrast to the nurturing relationships that we see with women. We also know that the Greeks had a significant array of baby gear. So they had these feeder vessels. So these two here, this one on the right, which looks like a pretty unremarkable object from the outside in an art museum, and actually has an internal mechanism that served as a filter. So it's quite sophisticated in its design and function. And then a very playful mouse feeder so that the baby would have been drinking from the tail, right? And seeing the mouse sort of superimposed onto his or her face. We also have a lot of objects that speak to children's play, so different toys that they played with, like spinning tops and dice, although dice were also used in gambling, actually, by adults. Dolls, although this one may have actually just been a votive, but has articulated limbs. We have these figures that have articulated limbs we find in tombs. The favorite game was knuckle bones. And so we see in a little vessel here, because knuckle bones are so ubiquitous in Greece because it's filled with sheep and goats. And so they would use the tarsal bones, like the back ankle bone of, of these animals to create their game pieces. And we see these two young women and they're about to throw their knuckle bones and they have a little pet dog is accompanying them. And actually knuckle bones are still played in Mongolia. My sister was there a few years ago and she came back with a bag full of knuckle bones and a felt game board. So that's the kind of thing that reminds us virtually no textiles from Greek antiquity survive, right? Only really things that are from Egypt from later. And so we don't know exactly what they played on, but perhaps they did have like some kind of board that was made of cloth. Or, but what we know about the game as it was played in Greece, from what we can tell, it was played similarly to jacks, right? Where you threw something up and caught them on your hand. But perhaps there were other types of games that they were used in. 
And then we also have objects that speak to the manner in which and the rituals by which children were brought into the community, by which the elders in the community instilled a sense of belonging in them. And one of those rituals was the festival held in honor of Dionysus every year, the Anthesteria. So that's what these little wine jugs that feature images of children on them, principally boys. They're often wearing these straps of amulets. Those were for their protection to ward off evil spirits. You see the one playing with the dog is wearing one. And so these vessels were used to pour, or they were basically mini wine cups of children who at the earliest age of three would take their first sip of wine. And so appropriately, they feature images of children and we see them with their pets and also the little boys boxing. So that's always fun to see the way in which Greek art is often reflecting back at the user what they are doing in life. So that's our case on children. And then we go into some detail about the home and about the primary activities of women other than the rearing of children, which was one of the main activities. So if we go over this way, one of the principal activities and responsibilities of women was to produce the textiles for the family. Clothing was very expensive to produce because it was all done at home by hand. And we believe almost exclusively the responsibility of women. There may have been some workshops later that integrated men. And so here we have actually a case filled with objects that we wouldn't normally display in a fine arts museum. We call them the blobs. They are loom weights. So they are blobs of clay in various shapes. They're in pyramidal shapes and sometimes circular and sometimes ovoid. These come from Assos, that site that I mentioned before, and they were excavated there. Although we don't have a lot of detail about where they were found because you know they weren't like precious objects or remarkable objects. However, they're objects that women worked with day in and day out. And even though they didn't have a lot of economic value in and of themselves, they probably did represent something personal value, right? Personal attachment. This is my loom weight, like my hairbrush. You know, I've used this hairbrush or whatever, you know, those sort of objects of personal use. Like a guitar pick. Yeah, right. So it's like a guitar pick. Like, but that was my favorite guitar pick, you know, that kind of thing. That one really worked well. And I don't care that it's like two cents to replace it. I want mine back. So yeah, exactly. And so then there are other objects that are used in the creation of textiles. So, of course, I mean, we don't have to go into all the details, but there was the spindle walls and that's how you spun the yarn before you even put it onto the loom. The looms were upright. We have this photograph of a vessel. This is a unique scene in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York in which two women are working at a loom. Very importantly, all of this weaving was done collaboratively. And that's what the vase really shows, that it was really a team effort. And it was also very complementary or compatible with child rearing because you could stop, you know, save your place when somebody needed your attention and then go back to it. And so the textiles that they made were not only used for clothing, but also for the furnishings of the house. So for cushions, for pillows, also for wall coverings, window coverings floor coverings, etc. So it's substantial. And actually, we read that most adult Greeks only had one set of clothing for their entire adult life. One of the reasons it's difficult actually to tell the difference between free members of the household and slaves often in imagery, where there isn't an obvious scale difference, is that we suspect that in wealthier households, slaves might have worn hand-me-down clothes, right? And it's also why when we see images of women folding garments and putting them into a chest, like we see on one of these vessels here, Oh, this is kind of a difficult image to read, but she's taking out what's probably a sash or some kind of accessory. But when we see garments that have traces of having been folded, it's really a sign 
of status, actually on the Juno sculpture too, the goddess sculpture, because if you have to store your clothes, it means you have more than one set, right? So that's a really like fast indicator of status. I wonder what the walking closet was like. Right, exactly. Well, you know, a lot of houses in Boston were built without closets in the Victorian era, right? Because people had like two or three sets of clothes. Mm -hmm. So this is just a totally different world. And then if we come over here, there's here's an explanation really of the types of garments that were worn. I feel like it was really important to do this because to delineate between the peplos, the chiton, and the hymation, which goes over those two, because we use these words all over our labeling, and we didn't really have another place to explain what they mean and what the difference is. And actually, sometimes it can be trickier than you think to determine them because they go by place and time and all that. So it was an important moment, I thought, since we were taking a somewhat gendered approach to the gallery, you know, these are the activities of men and these are the primary activities of women to talk about how they were seen, you know, and clothed when the men weren't nude, of course, which was a heroic costume that they wore in the context of athletics and war, at least in depictions of war. But just to say a little bit about how Greek garments were not sewn, but rather fastened. That's why we have a lot of pins that survive, and we have a lot of different kinds of pins, like this fibula down here from the area around Thebes, and then this special kind of pin that's actually quite early. It's one of the earliest objects in the gallery, the really sharp long pin called a perone that was at one point determined to be dangerous because women could use it to defend themselves or and we read, I think it's in Herodotus, that at one point they were taken away from the Athenians. <laughs> but oh, yeah, it yeah, it's Herodotus, yeah. right? It was Solon that told them to set. Yeah. yeah. I'll talk about that. Oh, good. You can look it up because like, yeah. I don't remember it right I, now. I remember the story you're talking about. With I think it's, it has to do with Egina. Like, it's yeah. a, it was the war with Pisistratus and Solon, and he, had, he sent the men dressed as women. And then they pulled them out. Yeah, it was the lone survivor. And anyway, and so we also talk about so the various different garments, but also the different colors, which are, of course, lost to us. But we know that yellow or saffron was a color that was associated with rites of passage. So we see that on this beautiful white ground lekathos, which is, again, one of the shapes that we know was used in exclusively funerary context. So the rite of passage alluded to here is probably both this woman's wedding, right, as being like the most important life event, and then also probably had a double allusion to the funeral as well. So in this case, we focus on professions and commerce. So we have a wonderful set of medical instruments. Both we have some Greek medical instruments and also a whole set from Roman times, though of similar shape. And that set of Roman medical instruments were carried in two cases that survived. And the small little cases are actually pillboxes. And when they first arrived, Christine shook it and there was a little rattle. So we actually were testing to see if there were pills inside. And we have of course, selection of objects relating to the god Asclepius, the healing god. Of course, he was worshipped in a great, wonderful sanctuary at Epidavros, which has a very famous theater, and also his daughter Hygieia, from whose name we take our word for hygiene. And also, we include, and this was a wonderful find in our storage, a money box. And it was inscribed, be of good health. And so you put your money, so these are actually ancient coins. We took a few out of the box to display them alongside it. 
you'd made your offering to the god to pray for good health. So this is like the health insurance of <laughs> antiquity. And also a beautiful, very large, probably too large, and probably just purely dedicatory set of tweezers right here. Yeah. And they have elegant incised decoration. And another ointment box. So this is our wonderful medical section. And we're so close to Harvard Medical School and the hospitals that we hope that our local audience really enjoys it if they have any time to get over to the museum. And then we have a section on artists and artisans and a feature object just behind you that shows on one side a blacksmith's shop and on the other side a cobbler's shop. And we at the MFA have a number of images of artists at work. There is a good corpus out there of images of these painters, one of the most important of which is in our intro case. And this one, so it's the interior of a drinking cup, right? Mm -hmm. The kind of cup that was used in the symposium. And we see what's called a choroplast, an artist who makes small terracotta figurines like the 2000 in our collection, and many of which are on display here in these various cases. We see him painting a terracotta head, right, um, seated on a stool. And then below that, we pulled, and this is another example of discoveries that we made in storage, of molds for making these very kinds of terracotta statuettes. So this shows us how the sculptor made the mold and then, you know, after it was fired, pressed new clay into the mold and how those terracottas were usually made of various pieces and then later, you know, put together. We also wanted to pay attention to the sea because, of course, you know, Greece has, there's some statistic that I can't recall, but has more coastline than like America or something because there's so much of it on the sea. And so to the role of fishermen, and we found, and this is like one of our favorite objects because it's not the sort of thing that we would normally put out in a fine art museum at once again, but the fish hook, which was probably dedicated in a sanctuary. And then this object that we at first thought served one function, but it's actually an implement for repairing a fisherman's net. So going back again to the comment you made before about the guitar pick, and we had help in interpreting this object based on contemporary objects that still look very similar. When the nets broke, fishermen repaired them. We have some vases, not in this gallery, that have evidence of ancient repairs. So it's always fun to see how the objects were revived. You know, we're so accustomed to throwing everything out now, right? And replacing things. Mine again. Yeah, that wasn't the case then. And, you know, that was true. And as I said, we discovered the real use of this object, the function of this object through maybe 19th and 20th century objects in Greece. And and, you know, the world has changed that much more even in the last hundred years. So here, again, scenes from the marketplace, from an oil merchant's shop. So we see the various men seated with oil jars of the same shape as this one hanging on the wall. And then, of course, significantly, agriculture and cooking. So the preparation of food also was one of the chief responsibilities of women. And we included some of the cooking pots that we had in our storerooms, the grating of, we used to say that this was a cheese grater, but I think we've come to the conclusion that it's probably more like some kind of grain or cheese. We don't know. And then a woman teaching perhaps her daughter, who's in a diminutive scale, how to cook, and so forth. So these wonderful terracottas, which come from the area of Thebes, so north of Athens, and what are called Boeotia, they tell us a lot about these very everyday life activities, like the barber cutting hair, which is in the very first case, and the preparation of food and so forth. So why don't I end on this cup, actually, because it's unique, and there's a list like this long in our database of how many scholars have cited it. It's so famous. So what we see here, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this object, is it's a tricky one to puzzle out on your own because it's so fragmentary. 
So what it is is a fragment of the interior of a drinking cup, one of those wide drinking cups called a kylex. And what we see on it, and it's incomplete, but we have most of the information, is a man seated on a rather nice stool. And behind him, he has some kind of walking stick. And balancing between his knees is a kylex, right? So we have, again, a very self-referential image here because the activity that's taking place on the vessel, you know, it's connected to the thing itself. And so what he's doing is he's holding the vessel, the kylex, by its stem in one hand. And with the other hand, he is drawing up the gloss that was used to paint the surface of these vessels, right? So he's telling us a lot about how they were made. So that's one key important factor is how much we learn about the technique of vase painting from this image. But we also see hanging on the wall is a strigil and it's just on the upper right and also another object that looks like perhaps an oil jar. And what's confusing about this is that, as I mentioned before, when we started, those are the attributes of an elite, right? An athlete who has the time to participate in athletic training isn't needed for any of these other activities, like basic activities like cooking and working the fields and making money, etc. And so we see him with the attributes of status. And yet, from everything that we read in literary sources, we know that artisans, particularly those who made vases and terracottas and so forth, were considered by the philosophers like Aristotle to be mere laborers, like people who work with their hands. Banauzoi, as they were called, were regarded as having a rather low status. So we have to think about, well, what is the significance of, like, there's a juxtaposition here between what he's doing and the attributes of status that we see in the image. And so we don't have a total conclusion, except that we suspect that perhaps it was just the incongruity of this juxtaposition was perhaps like funny to a symposiast or something. Much more than that, we really can't mm -hmm. say because we don't have literary sources to attest to. Could it be just a an elite slumminess, so to speak? You know how like that, elites liked being gladiators that, later in the Roman so period. That, that is one of the theories. Yeah, is that it could be an image, sort of like Marie Antoinette, you know, in her milkmaid costume, mm -hmm. right? Is like taking on this alternative identity. Costume party. <laughs> costume party. Well, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. It was great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with you. <laughs>